0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. We'll we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. In the first five verses, we saw Naomi laying out a plan for Ruth to follow so that Ruth could come into contact with Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, and find redemption. And we pick up, after Naomi has laid out this plan before Ruth, we pick up in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 3. And it says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in this city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. As we celebrate Mother's Day, I find it appropriate that we are, at this point, in the book of Ruth. The mother in this story, Naomi, is not actually present in this portion of this chapter, but her her presence is certainly felt. Out of great love, Naomi has sent her daughter-in-law, who is like a true daughter to her, to find redemption. And for so many of us, our Christian testimony must take into account a mother's love. Even if our mother is not physically with us any longer, if she is the one who has pointed us to the Redeemer, to the Lord Jesus Christ, her presence, her impact, is felt in our lives. And we definitely see that as the case here in Ruth 3. Naomi's presence is felt throughout this entire section because it's, it's her plan it's her pointing Ruth to the Redeemer this relative that Ruth is seeking to have a conversation with so let's just begin working through this passage in verses 6 through 8 we see Naomi's weird plan executed and it does strike us as a weird plan in verse 5 before we get into verse 6 Remember what Ruth said. Ruth heard this plan of Naomi's, and Ruth said, All that you say, I will do. In verses 6 through 8, we see Ruth follow through entirely on that commitment. For instance, verse 6, So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law commanded her. Ruth is a woman of her word. Now, it's not mentioned here. It just says, after Naomi gave her those instructions and Ruth said, all that you say I will do, it just jumps to the part of her instructions that that told her to go down to the threshing floor. It's not mentioned here, but doubtless, she has also followed her her mother-in-law's previous instructions. What did Naomi tell Ruth to do before going down to the threshing floor? She told her to wash herself, to anoint herself, and to put on her clothes. Now, last week I had argued that these previous instructions were not about Ruth getting gussied up to become irresistibly attractive to Boaz. No, these instructions were geared more toward having Ruth end her period of mourning for her husband. Not washing, not anointing yourself, and wearing special mourning clothes were characteristic of someone who was in mourning. And remember, remember last week we saw that in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, where David was mourning for his sick and dying son, and he wasn't washing himself, he wasn't anointing himself. And then we saw it in chapter 14, verse 2, where Joab is trying to reconnect David with Absalom, and he enlists the help of this woman from Tekoa, And Joab tells her to act like she's in mourning. And it's specified there that that involved wearing mourning clothes. And by Naomi having Ruth wash herself, anoint herself, and change her clothes, by so doing, Ruth would signal to Boaz that her time of mourning was over and she was ready to get married again. So Ruth goes down to the threshing floor, having washed having anointed and having exchanged, presumably, her mourning clothes for her normal clothes. And she waits. Verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And that's just what Naomi had told Ruth to do. Ruth does not make herself known to Boaz until he finishes eating and drinking. And the result of Boaz's eating and drinking is that his heart is merry. That is, it is well with his heart. He's glad. He is contented by the fruit of his labors. And the verb, his heart was merry, is the same verb that Naomi used in verse 1 when she said that she wanted to seek rest Ruth, so that it may be well with her. That word for it may be well is the same verb used to describe Boaz's heart as being Mary. Boaz is in a state of well being, and Naomi wants Ruth to be joined to Boaz so that she may share in his well being. He can provide this for her. That's why she's sending her to him. So Boaz goes with a merry heart to lie down at the end of the heap of winnowed grain. Now, why was Boaz sleeping there? Why didn't he go back to his house? Well, presumably, he's sleeping there to guard the harvest. You'd have wild animals or thieves come and try to benefit from all the hard work of somebody else by helping themselves to the winnowed grain. So that's where Boaz is. He's sleeping at the end of the heap Of grain that has been winnowed. And in keeping with Naomi's instructions, it's only now, once Boaz is bedded down and sound asleep, that Ruth comes to him. And she comes to him secretly. She doesn't allow anyone, including Boaz, to know that she's coming. And what does she do? She uncovers his feet and she lays down. Now, I left you with that cliffhanger last week about what was up with. Uh, Her uncovering his feet? Well, let's try to answer that. That's the moment you've all been waiting for. Well, there seems to be a couple of different things going on on two different levels by this action of uncovering his feet. First of all, at the practical level, this action functions as a timing mechanism. By uncovering Boaz's feet, Ruth doesn't wake him up right away. She uncovers his feet, and he just keeps sleeping. He keeps sleeping as others in the area either leave or they bed down for the night themselves and drift off to sleep. But eventually, with his feet uncovered, after the folks around them have left or have fallen asleep, the cool night air will do what? It will chill Boaz's feet to the point of waking him up. At which point, Boaz will see Ruth and they will have the opportunity to talk privately. He'll reach down to cover his feet back up, and he'll discover a woman lying there. And we see this practical aspect of uncovering Boaz's feet work perfectly in verse 8. What does verse 8 say? It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. That word for startled, it means to shake or to tremble. And the context determines the cause of the shaking or trembling. Some context is because the person is fearful. They're shaking because they're fearful. Other contexts, it's the ground shaking because there's an earthquake. In this case, it would seem that Boaz is trembling for no other reason than he's cold. He's cold from the cool night air upon his his feet. So he wakes up, he's been disturbed, and what does he do? He bends forward, probably to cover his feet back up, and as he does so, he makes a surprising discovery. There's a woman lying at his feet. This is not anything Boaz was expecting to find. So that practical step of uncovering his feet, it worked to perfection. Naomi is a genius. It worked. So that's the practical level of what's going on. But why go that route to wake Boaz up? Why can't Ruth just stay in the area, wait a few hours till everybody's gone or asleep, and then nudge Boaz awake? Well, first of all, continuing our thoughts on this practical level, shaking the man awake might not result in the desired action. Reaction, especially if he's on guard. She might walk away with a black eye or something. Uncovering his feet would be a gentler, more gradual way to wake him up without freaking him out, for lack of a better explanation. So that's the practical level. But this act of uncovering Boaz's feet also seems to function on another level, a communication level. This action is communicating something to Boaz. And to see that, let's move on to the next verse. And this begins the section that I have entitled A Wondrous Loving Kindness Expressed. We see this in verses 9 through 11. But we begin with Ruth's request. Look at verse 9. Boaz awake, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. He asked the obvious question, the question you would ask if you woke up in the middle of the night and there was a a figure lying at your feet and a woman at that. Who are you? In the dark, he probably struggled to make out her face. Also, if he had been used to seeing Ruth in clothes of mourning, her different clothing may have prevented him from recognizing her right away. And in Ruth's response to that question, we see how uncovering Boaz's feet may have been working on that second communicative level. She identifies herself to Boaz as Ruth, his maid, and she makes a bold and quite forward request. She says, Spread your covering over your maid. For you are a close relative. Now remember, Boaz had gone to sleep with a merry heart, with a sense of total well being. And having been woken up from his contented sleep due to trembling from the cold, he had just bent forward to do what? To spread his covering back over his cold feet, to restore in full the well being that he had gone to sleep having. And as he did so, he discovered Ruth. And now she has asked him to do what? To spread his covering over her. She who is a destitute widow, out in the cold, if you will, in need of someone to provide her with rest, with warmth, and with protection. He has the means to do that for himself. He has the means to do that for her. Spread your covering over me, just like you just did over your feet. Clever Naomi had come up with a plan of action that would not only gently wake Boaz up, but at the same time would subtly but clearly remind him of Ruth's great need for covering. And this request from Ruth to cover her, it's a request for marriage. It's a request for marriage. Turn over to Ezekiel 16 with me. We see this idiom employed In this chapter, Ezekiel 16, this passage talks about uh, God's relationship to Jerusalem and its allegorical language. He's talking about Jerusalem as if Jerusalem was um, a child grown up to become a bride. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt, nor, nor even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open, open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Verse 8 is the the key verse for, for us. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril. Earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. In verse 8, God is said to spread his skirt over Jerusalem. And the words in verse 8 of spread and skirt, those are the same words that we find in Ruth 3 verse 9, translated as spread and covering. When Ruth said, spread your covering over your maid. It's the same thing here. God spread his skirt or his covering over Jerusalem. And the word for covering or skirt It means the edge or the corner of a garment. And God's spreading his his garment over Jerusalem was connected to him entering into a covenant with Jerusalem. And what kind of covenant do you think that was in this kind of context? A marriage covenant. A marriage covenant. And that is the same kind of imagery that Ruth is using here. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. But she's also saying something else when she says spread your covering over me. There is another nuance to the word for covering. In certain contexts it can also be translated as wing or wings. And you can see how the same word could carry each meaning. The wing of a bird being similar in shape to the edge or the corner of a garment that you would lift up to spread over the shoulder of someone else. Back in Ruth, look at chapter 2 and verse 12. There Boaz had first met Ruth and he had prayed something for her. What did he pray? He said, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, it's the same word as covering or skirt, Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Just like last week, remember, when we saw Naomi begin to be the means that God would use to answer her earlier prayer for Ruth, so here, by Ruth saying, Spread your wings over me, Boaz, she is asking Boaz to be the means that God would use to answer his own prayer for her that he had prayed earlier. And Ruth doesn't stop here. She gives Boaz a reason for why he should grant her her request. What does she say? Chapter 3, verse 9. I'm Ruth your maid, so spread your covering over your maid. Why? For you are a close relative. You are a goel. You are a kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And just a quick reminder on What that is, a kinsman redeemer was someone who was responsible to rescue his relatives from difficult situations when they were unable to help themselves. Ruth is asking Boaz to do what redeemers do, that is, to deliver her, the widow of his relative, from her plight. And that delivering, in this case, would involve him marrying her in order to provide her the rest and the security that she needs. Now, I want you to think about what Ruth must have been experiencing as she went to carry out this this weird plan of her mother-in-law's. What must she have been experiencing, feeling? What would you be feeling? Probably nervousness, right? She had to have been nervous to carry out this nighttime plan. First of all, nervous because of the request that she was going to make to Boaz. Just making the request would have been difficult enough. She was a young, destitute, foreign widow asking him, an older, wealthy, Israelite man of standing, to marry her. And the circumstances in which she was making this request made that chore all the more difficult. She had come to him secretly. In the dark, she had uncovered his feet and laid down at his feet. This is an embarrassing situation, an awkward situation, because Boaz is a godly man. He's not the sort of man that invites women to come to him at the threshing floor in the middle of the night. And so when he wakes up and he sees her and she asks this question, spread your garment over me, You could see how he would easily misinterpret that. And Ruth had to be afraid of how he was going to react. Was he going to reject her and run her off? She's just made the request and no doubt at this point her heart is pounding as she anxiously awaits his response. How does he respond? Well, we see Boaz's response in verses 10 through 11. Then he said... May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in this city know you are a woman of excellence." What do you think Ruth is feeling now? Instant relief, instant relief. At the end of verse nine, The air was so thick with tension that you could cut it with a knife. But instead of rejecting her, instead of running her off, what does Boaz do? He blesses her. He praises her. He tells her, don't be afraid. And then he commits to do whatever she asks. Once again, his response is beyond most likely what Ruth would have been hoping for. He prays that she would be blessed by Yahweh, and he calls her my daughter. And then he praises her. He says, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. And that word for kindness, that's one of the key words in this book. It's the word chesed, loving kindness. He says that she has done more loving kindness by this proposal of marriage to him than she did by her first act. Now, what is this first act that he's referring to? Well, it is the act that he spoke of back in chapter 2 and verse 11. Remember, she came to the field requesting uh, for the the opportunity to glean, and Boaz goes above and beyond for her, and she is shocked, and she says, Why have you shown me such favor? Well, he explains in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. That's the first act of loving kindness that Boaz is referring to here. There, in chapter 2, Boaz had been amazed at Ruth's loving kindness for Naomi, and he was so amazed that in response to Uh, that realization of of her loving kindness for her mother-in-law, he had made sure that she'd be able to glean as much grain from his field as she wanted. But here, in chapter 3 and verse 10, Boaz says that what Ruth has just done in asking him to marry her is a greater act of loving kindness than that first act. Now this tells us something very important. This tells us that Ruth's proposal of marriage to Boaz was not a self-centered thing. Remember, uh, back in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, when Naomi planned this whole thing, it was evident that Naomi was intensely concerned about Ruth's well-being. And up until this point, as we see Ruth carry out her her mother-in-law's plan you may have been thinking that Ruth also was doing this out of a concern for her own well-being. But when Boaz calls her action, her proposal to him, an act of loving kindness, and an act of loving kindness that is even greater than what she had done before, that tells us that in proposing marriage to Boaz, Ruth is not thinking about herself. She's thinking about someone else. And Boaz discerns that Ruth is again acting out of loving kindness, that she is again acting out of a concern for the well-being of someone other than herself. And Boaz explains himself in verse 10. He says, You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. He's saying that Ruth could have sought marriage with any vigorous young man, rather than an older man like himself. She could have married a poor man or a rich man. And the the commentator, Robert Hubbard, he said that this was another way of Boaz saying, you could have married for love, marrying a poor man, or you could have married for money, marrying a rich man. But Ruth picked him. And what was the reason she gave? For you are a goale. You are a kinsman redeemer. Boaz seems to understand that Ruth is not simply desiring relief for herself. She is desiring relief for who? For her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth is desiring the resolution of the problem that we encountered in chapter 1. And what was that problem? The problem of utter hopelessness for Naomi. The problem of her husband and son's their name being wiped out of Israel because they had died without any children. That was was what the whole book started with. That is the problem in the book of Ruth. And the fact that that this is still what Ruth is concerned about will fully surface later in chapter 4. Go over to chapter 4 and verse 10, where Boaz explains why he's taking Ruth as his wife. Ruth 4, verse 10, he says, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife. Why? In order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. Boaz sees that this is why Ruth is coming to him, rather than, than her, her pick that she could have had from any of the young men. And Boaz hears this request from Ruth, and he is stunned. Boaz is stunned by this act of loving kindness by Ruth for Naomi and her family. Not only has Ruth left her father and her mother and the land of her birth, not only has she come with Naomi to a people that she did not previously know, not only has Ruth labored these past two months to provide food for Naomi, but now Ruth is willing to marry a man for the sake of giving rest and hope to her mother-in-law. And for us who have been so indoctrinated by Hollywood romance movies and sappy romance novels, that seems kind of offensive to us. Oh, you shouldn't marry for anything other than romantic love. We tend to think that way. And I'm not saying that there are no sparks of romantic love flying between these two. But I'm saying that that is secondary here. That is not primary. Primary for why Ruth is coming is her loving kindness for this family, Naomi, and the dead relatives. I want you to remember the commitment that Ruth made back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. Do you remember what Ruth said there? When Naomi said, go back to Moab. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. She has not backed off of that commitment in the slightest. Here in chapter 3, she is continuing to fulfill that commitment that she made. And Boaz is stunned by that. In verse 11, Boaz reassures Ruth by telling her not to be afraid. And then he says, I will do for you whatever you ask. Does that sound familiar? Where did we hear that before? I'll do whatever you say. That's what Ruth said to Naomi. Remember back in verse 5 of chapter 3? We know now that Ruth had said that to Naomi out of loving kindness for Naomi. Boaz here, and saying, I'll do for you whatever you ask, Boaz here shows himself to be someone who will match Ruth in loving kindness, act for act. No doubt Boaz could have had his pick of anybody. But he says, I'll do whatever you ask to Ruth. He too will do whatever it takes to redeem this family. And just like he did in chapter 2, when Ruth wondered why he would show her such favor, And he responded by telling her that he had heard all that she had done for Naomi. So here, Boaz says that he's willing to do whatever she asks because Ruth is what? A woman of excellence. We saw that in Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife or an excellent woman, who can find? Her worth is far above rubies. And Boaz sees Ruth and he knows that that's the kind of woman she is. And when he calls her a woman of excellence, it is at this point that we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these two people, Ruth and Boaz, were made for each other. That it's God's will that these two be united in marriage together. Because this phrase, woman of excellence, that's the same phrase that was used to describe Boaz back in chapter 2, verse 1, when he was called a man of great wealth or excellence. They're the same kind of people. And considering the loving kindness, the wondrous loving kindness that is being expressed by both Ruth and Boaz, it's quite striking to see how both of these individuals are going above and beyond. Ruth is going above and beyond for Naomi, and Boaz is going above and beyond for the sake of Naomi and Ruth. And that is what chesed does. That is what loving kindness does. It goes above and beyond for the good of someone other than yourself. And in this way, the book of Ruth is the Old Testament true story version of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10 to take a look at this parable with me. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Jesus is using this parable to absolutely destroy a lawyer's hopes of justifying himself before God. This lawyer in this account tells Jesus what he thinks he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And as he tells Jesus what he thinks the standard is, you can tell that he senses that he may fall short of that required standard. And so he asks Jesus, a question to try to justify himself. Luke 10, verse 25 says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and... Your neighbor as yourself. And he said, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was probably thinking, you know, that guy and that guy I like, I'm willing to do that. But that guy and that guy I hate, I know I'm not doing that for them. So he's trying to justify himself. He senses, I'm falling short of what I just said. Let me make sure I'm I'm still good. And listen to how Jesus replies to him. Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The two people that you would most think would be willing to help, one of their own countrymen, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Samaritans were a different ethnic group, and the Samaritans and the Jews absolutely hated one another. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. That's going above and beyond. Verse 36, Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. When Jesus says, Go and do the same, remember the whole context is, What must I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you go and you love like that. You go and you go above and beyond for that. Even the person that you like the least, you go and you love above and beyond that person. When Jesus says that, that should cause us to throw our hands up in despair, because if that is the standard required in order to earn eternal life, then you and I are lost forever, because I fall far short of that standard every single day. This parable that Jesus tells the self-righteous lawyer causes us to give up all hopes of earning eternal life ourselves, and it causes us to look for hope and salvation in someone other than ourselves. We fall short of the standard, so we must look for one who meets the standard for us, and that person is Jesus Christ. And when we come to the book of Ruth, and we see these two people, a Jew and a Moabite going above and beyond for each other. In one sense, we should be spurred on to want to love like they love, but in another sense, we should be struck by our total inability and our unwillingness to love like this, especially when it comes to, we're talking about marriage here. How much, how often do we marry not for the sake of the other, but for the sake of the self? And then we go throughout marriage trying to get for ourselves from the other. Marriage is the the one place where our selfishness most rises to the surface. And yet here are these two people willing to commit the rest of their lives together, not for personal satisfaction, but for the good of an old woman whose husband and sons have died. And we should read that, and we should be convicted to the core That we are not living like that. And we will not enter the land of heaven if it's dependent upon us. And it should drive us to seek salvation in someone other than ourselves. And thankfully, there is a Redeemer willing to save the likes of us. And in verses 12 and 13, we see echoes of this willing Redeemer. It's in verses 12 to 13 that we see a willing Redeemer encountered. So we we see Boaz and Ruth, they are both matching each other, act for act, in expressing loving kindness. They are both a man and a woman of excellence. They are meant for each other. We can already hear the wedding bells starting to, to toll in the distance. But it is at this point that we encounter a problem. Verse 12, Boaz goes on. He says, Now it is true I am a close relative, a redeemer. However, there is a redeemer closer than I. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. Verse 13, Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will. Redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. In our previous discussion of the laws surrounding kinsman redeemers and leveret marriage—that is, brother-in-law marriage, where if a, a man's brother dies, he marries the widow to raise up a son for his dead brother—we saw in those discussions that there was an order to be observed when a relative needed to be redeemed. The right and the responsibility to rescue that person fell to the Redeemer who was most closely related to the one in need. And Boaz tells Ruth, there's somebody more closely related to Naomi and you than I am. And so he cannot act until he first finds out whether or not this closer Redeemer will decide to act. And Verse 13 really caught my attention. First, in verse 13, Boaz tells Ruth to lodge there that evening. He wasn't about to send her home and and get mugged on the way back in the middle of the night. So he says, just sleep the rest of the night here. But what caught my attention in this verse was when he said, if he will redeem you, if the other guy will redeem you, marry you, good, let him redeem you. Now, We tend to read this story like we would watch a typical Hollywood romance. And so it puzzles us that Boaz would say, if the other guy will redeem you, good. We say, no, that's not good. That's not how it's supposed to be. And if if the other guy tries to marry her, we expect Boaz to go and stop the wedding and take her off on a, a white horse. How can you say that, Boaz? Don't you love this woman? But we miss the point that unlike Hollywood movies where the focus is love of self and wanting someone for yourself, the focus here is on the good of the other. Boaz's priority is not getting a pretty young wife for himself. His priority is Ruth's redemption. And so he says, if the other guy can redeem you, good, because it means your redemption. But Boaz says, if he doesn't want to, I will. And then he takes an oath by the name of Yahweh. And it's here that we learn two things about Boaz. First, we learn that Boaz's priority is Ruth's redemption. That's his priority, not self-satisfaction. His priority is Ruth's redemption. Second, we learn that Boaz is a willing redeemer. And he's so willing, in fact, that he swears by the name Of Yahweh that He will redeem her. Just like who? Ruth, when she swore by the name of the Lord that she would not leave Naomi ever. Boaz is so willing to redeem that he swears by the name of Yahweh. Does that not remind you of Jesus Christ? As I studied this passage, I thought of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Turn to Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In Ruth 3, we have a destitute foreign woman coming to a wealthy Israelite man asking for redemption. And instead of shunning her, Boaz responds with an eager willingness to redeem her. Here in Matthew 8, the contrast is even greater. We have a leper, an unclean outcast of society with body parts fallen off him everybody terrified they're going to catch what he's got we have this leper coming to Jesus the son of God asking for redemption rescue from his illness and if you didn't know anything about Jesus other than that he is the pure son of God you might expect Jesus to do what? to recoil in disgust like everybody else did when this man walked by You might expect Jesus to say, What, are you kidding me? Get out of here. You shouldn't even be here. But how did he respond? He stretched out his hand. And he touched the man nobody else wanted to touch. And he said, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And if you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, and you come to him seeking redemption. The contrast between you and him will be greater than the contrast between Ruth and Boaz, and it will be even greater than the contrast between the leper and Jesus. It will be you, the sinner, the rebel, the idolater, the selfish one, the liar, the blasphemer, the murderous adulterer at heart, you coming to the Holy One, The well-beloved of the Father, the selfless one, the one who is God-made flesh, the king of the universe, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we didn't have the Bible telling us who Jesus is, telling us what he has done for sinners, and how he invites them to come to himself, we would expect Jesus to cast every last one of us into hell, which is where we deserve to go, whether we asked him to redeem us or not. But when we read this book, we find out that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh so that he could take the wrath of God for sin upon himself. And we find here that he died in the place of sinners and he rose from the dead to rescue sinners. And when we read this book, we hear Jesus say, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We hear Jesus say, the Son of Man has come, and, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we hear God's promise that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you don't yet know Christ and you come to him, if you turn away from your sins and by faith you ask this one to redeem you and to forgive you and to grant eternal life to you, to bring you into his family and to put you into his service, you will find Jesus to be an even more eager redeemer than Boaz was. And his eagerness to redeem you has nothing at all to do with your worthiness. You are not worthy. It has everything to do with his willingness. And once you come to Jesus by faith, he then unites you to himself and he places his Holy Spirit within you, freeing you from your slavery to your selfishness and empowering you to begin loving others the way that he has loved you. So, run to Jesus because in Him we have a willing Redeemer. Doesn't matter how dirty we are, He is willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a willing Redeemer. And Lord, those of us here who have turned from our sins and put our trust in Jesus, we have experienced this. We have experienced this willingness of the God-man to stretch out his hand and to touch us, to say, I am willing, and to wash us in his blood and to spread the hem of his garment over our naked shoulders and to bring us into union with himself. We thank you that we have such a Redeemer. And Lord, anybody who is here who has not yet come to know Jesus Christ as such a Redeemer, may you open their eyes today. May you give them understanding that Jesus is standing there with his hands outstretched to them. And may they turn from sins, their sins and come to him in faith, surrendering their lives to him. And you promise that you will redeem that person. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.